Let's pray together, and just in keeping with Kathy's admonition a moment ago, you can remain standing, you can take a seat, whatever is just going to allow you, uh, maybe not necessarily the most comfort, but the most attentive position before the Lord. As we're singing that song, knowing we were going to be singing that song a few moments ago, Lord directed my thoughts to Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, where it says, Come, everyone who thirsts to the waters. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? This is the Lord speaking. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. His abundance. This morning we come before the Lord and it's easy to forget. I know it's easy for me to forget because we live in land by and large of plenty, but truly, whether it's literally true uh, in the material sense, but certainly in the spiritual sense, we come to the Lord with empty hands. We have nothing to bring him that would cause him to, to favor us. We have nothing we can do for him to earn his pleasure. As, as Marv told us, the answer to it all is the cross, and Jesus paid the full price, and it's good that we remember that today. And, and what Jesus does here is essentially invite us to come as beggars, to come knowing that we have nothing to offer him, but knowing that he has everything, abundance, the word says, to offer us. And so what I want to invite you to do right now as we go to prayer is, is you just speak to the Lord, whether you want to do it silently or audibly where you stand, and, and just tell the Lord what you desire from him today, what you need from him today. That may be something material. You may be in great personal need. It may be a spiritual need, a burden or a sorrow or a heartache. Maybe you just need some direction. And, and, and to come boldly before him and say to him right now, Lord, this morning what I need from you is. And as, your as his child, don't be afraid to do that. Don't act like that's an unhumble thing to do. What do you need from the Lord today? Right now, just quietly, audibly, Lord, this morning what I need from you is, tell him what you need. He already knows it, but agree with him anyway. What do we need from Jesus as we come here today? He is the meter of needs. He is the satisfier of longings. He's the answer to our chaos and uncertainty and confusion. Understand that as you're telling him that right now, he is your father. His eyes are fixed upon you. His hands are open to you. He doesn't have to go look and see if there's a little more of what you need in the back room. It's all there. And he delights to bless his children. Father, I thank you that time and again in your word, you do it here in Isaiah. Jesus did it as well. You invite us as it were, to come to the altar, to come, more importantly than that, to, to the feet of Jesus. The nail-scarred feet and hands of Jesus by which he proves to us. We can be reminded, as we have been this morning all over again, that a great price was paid on our behalf and that it was done willingly and out of great compassion and love. Father, we thank you that you are not distant. We thank you that you are not unfeeling. We thank you 
Father, for the assurance that we can come to you. We can come with nothing in our hands, nothing to offer you, and yet we can expect as your children to receive every spiritual blessing. Father, that you will give us everything that's needed to help us walk with Jesus by faith all the days of our lives. Father, that's why we come back here, whether we feel like it on Sunday morning or not. Some days we're thrilled and some days we aren't. But Father, you... Once we get here, once we gather together, we're reminded, or we should be, that you are a great God, that you are compassionate and kind and good, that Jesus is a merciful Savior, and that the Holy Spirit is real, that he dwells within us, that he moves among us, and Lord, that that he, even in these moments together, intends to transform us in powerful ways. Father, we're going to go to your word now, expecting great things from you. Father, not expecting great things from me but expecting great things from you that as we open the living word, Father, and as we trust the Holy Spirit, and we open ourselves, our hearts and minds to you, that you will do a work worthy of your great name, the name of Jesus. Father, I pray that as we study the scriptures today, that as always you would guide us in truth, that as always you would guard us from error, that as always you would deliver us from distraction and indifference and frustration and whatever else we may have drug in here with us this morning. Let it help us to let it go. That in these precious moments together, we might see Jesus clearly as we study your word. We might see Jesus only as we study your word. And when we leave here in a little while, Father, may it be refreshed with with new oil, new joy, a new resolve to love you well and love others the way you've loved us. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you're about to do now in us and among us. And we ask it all in the powerful name of Jesus, as all God's people said together, amen. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're taking your seats, boys and girls, for Children's Church, those of you who are of that age, you can head on out uh, to go spend time uh, looking at God's Word and and just enjoying that together. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, uh, and if you don't, you can go grab one or you can bring one up quick on your phone. I want you to take out your Bible. I want you to meet me this morning in Acts chapter 4. I want you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 4. Four. And as you are making your way there, I want you to know, I'm just going to explain to you right up front, that we are dropping in in the midst of a story already in progress, okay? Usually we want to get a story from start to finish. We want to see all that was going on, all that God was, was up to. But, but we're, we're coming in on something that has already been unfolding. Really, we're coming in at the climax and the culmination of this story Uh, Because that's where I believe God wants us in his word this morning. But a lot of times when you drop in on something like that uh, and, and you don't know what's going on, it's very confusing. So as you're making your way to what we are going to look at in Acts chapter 4, let me bring you up to speed on what we are not going to look at so that we are all beginning from the same basic place. Because the story we're going to look at in God's word this morning really is a culmination It's a culmination of a string of events that began back at the beginning of Acts chapter 3 with Peter and John, two of the disciples, two of the apostles now, performing a great miracle. They healed a lame man, a man unable to walk, restored him to perfect health. And by performing that great miracle in the temple in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people, that provided the apostle Peter with the opportunity, having performed a great miracle, then to preach a great sermon. And and the reason I say it was a great sermon is because by the time he finished, 
It says somewhere, or it suggests anyway, that as many as 2,000 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ. It was a big day in the church. We previously knew that they, the church had grown to, to about 3,000. After this, it says the church in Jerusalem is at least 5,000. So good things were happening here in the early church. But what the performance of that miracle and the preaching of that sermon and the response of the people also did, while it did some great things in and among the church, it also prompted the first recorded account of persecution we have in the early church. The first time that those who opposed Jesus, who weren't followers of Christ, rose up in a specific way to oppress God's people. And the way they did it here is they threw Peter and John in jail. Imagine that. They heal a man who's never been able to walk. They preach a sermon a whole bunch of people get really happy there in the moment, and their response is to throw them in jail. And that's what they did. Threw them in jail, and, and then they brought them before the authorities. And, and when they did so, what the, the authorities began to realize is, A, they couldn't refute the miracle that had been done. They had no explanation for it. And B, they realized they could not rebut Peter's preaching. They could not argue with what he said and what it led to. And, and so when that was the case, I want you to look at verse 18 of Acts chapter 4. It says, when they summoned them, realizing we can't explain the miracle, we can't answer the sermon, here's what they did. They commanded them, Peter and John, to no longer speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And in response, you know what Peter and John said? This is a direct translation, Greek to English. They said, no dice, guys. <laughs> Not going to happen. It said, in fact, they were more resolved than ever to go out and preach in the name of Jesus. Now, with that backstory established, I'm going to begin reading this morning in Acts 4.23. I'll read down through verse 31 where this is what the Word of God says. It says, when they had been released, Peter and John, they went to their own companions. They went to the church, the gathering of God's people. And they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they, the church, heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all boldness, while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. 
Now, two weeks ago, we launched, I launched this new sermon series. This series of studies is going to take us through the next couple of months by sharing with you the story of how here at Maranatha Bible Church, uh, about a year and a half ago, our leadership team made evangelism our number one ministry initiative. We did that because we believe that's what God wanted us to do. And by making evangelism our number one ministry a priority or initiative, what I mean by that is this. I'm going to put this on the screen in case you may want to make note of it, but at least I want to read it for you so we all understand what, what it is. By that we mean, we believe God is prompting us as a church to intentionally develop circles of influence beyond the church family for the purpose of inviting others into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's evangelism. To develop circles of influence outside the church so that we can find ways to introduce people, invite them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then I went on to share with you in that story how having established that as our number one ministry initiative, God then very shortly thereafter provided us with something called evangelism shift, an opportunity, an initiative of, of, of its own that equips us as believers to live as witnesses for Jesus Christ. Wherever he's placed us, whatever season or place of life we may be in, with the idea that we simply meet people where they are, spiritually speaking, and then we help them take the next step. That's what this initiative is all about. And, and so to that end, what we did two weeks ago, the last time we were together here in this way, is we explored the theme of sentness in John's gospel. Concluding this, that to be saved is to be sent. If you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, guess what? You have been sent into this world as a messenger, as an evangelist, as an ambassador for Jesus Christ. In other words, living as a witness is for us all. But here's the thing. This is just a hunch on my part. But I think it's a good one when I say to you that with certain notable exceptions, the idea of sharing our faith in Jesus Christ with someone else, opening up our mouth and having a spiritual conversation with an unbeliever is, in a word, scary. I'm not saying it should be. I'm not, I'm not saying we want it to be that way. But I am saying to you this morning, and if I asked for a show of hands, I know what I would get. We would say, yeah. Whether it's a little bit or a lot, that is not necessarily something any of us finds easy to do. And frankly, it does take a measure of boldness. You must be bold. I must be bold in the right kind of way if I'm going to talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus about their need for a relationship with Jesus. The question is, where should the boldness come from? I need to be bold. You need to be bold. Where should a spirit of boldness come? come from? Well, that's where this story comes in. Because what happened in the span of these eight or nine verses is that from the beginning of verse 23 to the end of verse 31, this gathering of believers in a very short amount of time went from shaken, shaken by their first real taste of persecution. Oh, we preach Jesus and we can go to jail? They went from shaken in verse 23 to stirred in verse 31. That is re-energized, revitalized, resolved once again to not just talk about Jesus, but, but to be even more bold in doing so. And so really the question that I'm asking you to consider with me this morning is how'd they get from point A to point B? How'd they go from shaken 
to stirred, even though the threat against them had not diminished and would not diminish in the least. Big picture answer to the question. They prayed. The big picture answer to that question, how they went from shaken to stirred, is the people of God prayed. The vast majority of what I just read to you was, in fact, a prayer they offered together to the Lord. And what we're going to do with the remainder of our time together, I'm going to try to do this as clearly and succinctly as I can, is we want to see how they prayed, what it was they prayed about that led them to a place of overcoming their fears of living as witnesses in a bold and distinct kind of way. And to that end, I see four things. There are four things I want to show you this morning in this prayer about the way they prayed. We need to pray if we're going to be effective witnesses. There are four things they prayed about or prayed around that moved them from shaken to stirred. Number one, verse 24 The first thing they did as they went before the Lord in prayer was they, number one, affirmed God's sovereign power. They began their prayer by affirming God's sovereign power. Now, some of you may know that this fall I have had the opportunity to teach the senior high Sunday school hour, the equipping hour class, and that we have been talking in that class about prayer like talking about prayer a lot. We've been talking about that together. And if at this particular moment I were to call upon some of the students in that class, which I'm not going to do, God, they're, they're actually saying no right now. They're, no, don't do that. But if I did, if I did, I know that they would be able to tell you, they would be able to say to you that the best way to begin praying isn't by seeking God's hand for stuff but by seeking the face of God in worship. By seeking the face of God in worship. And and the reason they would be able to go on and tell you that, I'm quite confident they'd be able to do this, the reason they would be able to tell you that is because we have discovered together that in prayer, when you concentrate on who God is, and when you zero in your attention on what God is like, all your problems become rather small. They don't go away. They don't get easier. But in their proper perspective, we see God is big and everything else is not. And when you focus on him, that begins to happen. And furthermore, if they listened closely today, they would also be able to tell you that the best place to begin praying that way is with an open Bible. To use the scriptures as we go to prayer. And what do you know? That's exactly what they did here. Look at verse 24. When they heard this, they heard... Guys, this this evangelism thing is going to cost us. They lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, Oh, Lord, now they're quoting. Actually, there's about three different Old Testament scriptures wrapped up in this one statement. Oh, Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You are a sovereign God. You know, I don't know about you. But in my lifetime, I don't ever recall witnessing, sharing my faith in Jesus with someone who had the power to throw me in jail for it, who had the power to actually do me physical harm. I mean, they may have wanted to, they they might be inclined to, but 
We live in a culture, in an era, say whatever you want to about it, where we don't pay that kind of price that the guys in this story did. But that was the deal here. In fact, here's what we need to take note of, is the fact that the, the people who were threatening Peter and John in this story, the ones who threw them in jail, they're the very same people who a few weeks earlier put Jesus on the cross. Not that much time has passed. Pontius Pilate is still governor of Jerusalem. Herod is still seated on his throne. The same high priests and chief priests and elders are running the show. And they, these guys know, the church knows what they did to Jesus. And now they're saying, guess what? We'll do it to you. So this is a serious threat. It's not a game. So that's why. As they gathered together in that room, once every head had been bowed and every eye had been closed, what did they do? They started praying to the God they know is sovereign. They began praying to God, knowing that he is the one who controls all the stars in the heavens. Look at the verse. Who controls all the, the fish in the sea and controls and orchestrates everything happening in between. In fact, the word that they use for Lord, most of your Bibles, English Bibles translate it sovereign Lord. The Greek term they use is a word despotes. It's where we get our English word despot. It literally in those days meant this, someone with, quote, unrestricted power and absolute dominion. We've got some big shots threatening us. Guess what? We're going to go pray to the one who has unrestricted power and absolute dominion. And here's what I'm saying. When you understand, when we understand, and remember, that's who God is. He's not just the man upstairs. He's not just somebody a little bit bigger and smarter than us. He is an eternal being with unlimited power and unchallengeable dominion. Listen, I think that has a way of making even the most fearsome earthly leader seem small. Not harmless, but small. And what better place for us to begin moving from shaken to stirred and living as witnesses than by remembering and affirming that we do so. You, listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you are a servant of the supremely sovereign God who made everything, controls everything, is going to finish everything he started. That's who he is. And you work for him, and so do I. And that's why they went here in their prayers. By the way, not only that, he also, not only is he all those things by definition, he secondly, he has a sterling reputation of taking care of his people. And that's the second thing they prayed about here. The second way in which they prayed that moved them from shaken to stirred. Number one, they began by affirming God's sovereign power. Then beginning in verse 25, they began in their prayer to recount God's past deeds. The second thing they did, going to the Lord under persecution, is they began recounting God's past deeds. You know, you don't have to be a Bible historian to know that almost from the very beginning, the people of God, the Jews in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, believers ever since, almost since day one, the followers of God on this planet have been in somebody's crosshairs, under attack, under persecution, under threat. The people of God have rarely had it easy here, which I want to show you we need to see here in response to their opening focus on God's power in verse 24, the early church began to, to prayerfully recount here. The first thing they do is they, their thoughts turn to their great Old Testament king, David. 
Now, again, I don't have to tell you all of David's story. Some of you know the details of it. But, but the bottom line in the story of David is this. David spent almost the entirety of his adult life fending off attack from enemies, foreign and domestic. He was always in battle. He was always at war. Since the first time he flung that stone at Goliath, there were people after him. He knew what it was like to be in danger and in trouble. Later in life, his own son uh, got him off the throne, uh, overthrew him, sent him away. David got back in the end, but, but his life was hard. And yet, what do they do is they go to prayer. They're like, Lord, we're under, but hey, you took care of David. You protected David. You accomplished what you wanted to do through him. Then, in verses 26 and 27, they turned their attention to Jesus. Look at what, he sa- what they say as they're praying in verse 26. The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, against the Messiah, Jesus. For, and again, this is very recent history to them, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod the king, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, along with all the Gentiles and even most of the people of Israel. They were all aligned against Jesus to do what? To do whatever they wanted to do? To carry out their wicked plans and schemes? Not so fast. Look at verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. You mean the cross was part of God's plan? Absolutely. That's what we were just reminded of in communion this morning. The Bible says in a certain place, I'm not smart enough in the moment to remember it, but I know it says it somewhere, that even the wrath of man shall praise him. That that all things really do work according to God's plan, and nobody can thwart it. Nobody can change it. God's going to do what God wants to do do, and he is going to protect and care for his people. And I think that's such a good word for us today, because what it means is that no matter how much power any one human being appears to have, and how wickedly they might be seeming predisposed to use it, and it means no matter how chaotic our culture is and becomes, how unpredictable the present and the future proves to be, and, and how, even how hopeless some of us may feel as we look at all this stuff going on around us. God's still running the show. If you write one thing down today, just write that down. God's still running the show, okay? He knows what he's doing. And he has a plan. And he will fulfill it. Why do I take the time to spell that out? Here's why. Because if that's true on the world's biggest of stages, God's in control of every detail, it is also true of that seemingly chance encounter you have with an old friend at Starbucks. It's true of that loved one in your family, maybe even in your own house, who has adamantly opposed Jesus for years. God's in charge of the plan and the conversation. God is the one running that show too. And his plans overrule theirs. His plans overrule ours. And when we are scared, here's the thing, when we're scared to bear witness to someone else of the hope we've found in Christ, you know what it helps to remember? He's been down this road before. And he's been faithful every time. He is sovereignly in control. He has an unblemished track record. 
You ever notice God oftentimes in the Bible, he lets things get the, their absolute worst for his people, that he just comes in and saves the day. Sometimes he does that. Not always. But he always comes through. And if you enter into a Jesus-centered conversation, he is going to direct it. So what do they do? How do they go from shaken to stirred? Number one, they affirmed God's sovereign power. Number two, they began to remember and recount God's past deeds. Number three, they expressed their need for help. The third thing they did is they prayed to God, seeking the boldness that he could give them that they needed was they expressed their need for help. You know, I think perhaps the most interesting thing about this prayer that the church prayed in view of persecution is that the thing that I spend most of my time praying about, and chances are the thing you spend most of your time praying about, which is our troubles, is the thing they spent the absolute least praying about. In fact, praying about the troubles merited one half sentence. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. And then they're on to other things. We're talking about Herod, Pontius Pilate. I would have prayed, get rid of them. Do away with them. Rain down fire from heaven on them. Hey, Lord, take note of their threats. And do whatever you need to do. Take care of that. You deal with it. Why? Because having, first of all, celebrated the sovereign power of God, and then, secondly, having rehearsed and recounted his faithful history, they remembered this, that while, while so much of what we face in life is beyond our control, nothing escapes his notice. He knows. He's watching. He's keeping score. He's involved. And, and so here's their conclusion. Why bother praying about it? I can't fix it. I can't change it. I know what I'd like God to do, but you take note of their threats. Why? Because we have a more important assignment than simply telling God how bad the world is and how bad people are and all the things that we don't like about it. It's not that we can't. It's just that we don't need to. Take note of their threats. What a great prayer. Because then it allowed them to move forward. They expressed their need for help, and they left it with the Lord. And I think there's another rich lesson there for us as we are learning or as we choose to learn to live as witnesses, moving from shaken to stirred. Because again, most of us probably find the thought of sharing my faith in Jesus with someone else scary. Hard. And, and yet what, what this says to me and I offer to you is, might that not change if instead of entering into every spiritual conversation I enter into, worried about how I might screw it up, worried about and, and in fear of everything that could go wrong, what if we simply prayerfully told God, hey, God, I see where this is going. Help, okay? Help me. And then we went into it in awe of the fact that he's in charge. This is his conversation to work out. It's his, it's, it's his responsibility to get the words out of my mouth and into their heart in such a way that we can converse about it. Why? Because only he can open up a sinner's heart to salvation. Only he can take someone lost and dead and shackled to sin and, and deliver to them the gift that you have, eternal life. Only he can do it. So let him do it. And, and if he wants me to fumble and stumble my way through it, that's fine. He overruled 
Herod and Pilate, he can overrule my stumbling words. Because that's who he is. Listen, here's what I'm saying. God knows that you need help to live as a witness. God knows that I need help to live well as a witness. I'm just suggesting we follow the church's example from back in the day. Cast the cares on him, and then, fourth and finally, here's what they prayed about. Rather than complaining about how hard it is, appeal to him for boldness, because that's what they did. They concluded their prayer in the midst of persecution by appealing to God for boldness. And what I love about this is he gave them exactly what they asked for. Look at verse 29. Now, Lord, take note of their threats, and here's their real request. Grant that your bondservants, that's us, may speak your word with all. Now, my Bible says confidence. Your translation probably says boldness, and that's really, really important. Because when you get to verse 31, it says, When they prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with all. What does it say? It's the same word both places. They said, God, we need boldness. God said, I'll do it. Here's boldness. And I'll just shake the room to show you that I'm answering the prayer. I'm going to give you exactly what you're asking for. And, and the vital thing here is to see how he did it. He did not do it by prompting John to give him a motivational pep talk. Come on, guys, you can do this thing. He didn't do it by miraculously delivering a stack of evangelistic materials to the front door that when they went, oh, well, here it is, we'll just hand this stuff out. No, verse 31 says, when they prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they began to speak the word of God with boldness. And if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit already lives in you. He didn't come to them in a way he hadn't come to them before. He simply moved in a way that they were now ready to be moved. They surrendered. They yielded. And what he did is granted them a fresh awareness of his power. And I think probably despite knowing full well that it was going to prompt more trouble, not less, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. And if you go home and read the rest of the chapter, you'll see lots more people got saved. Lots more people got saved. And above all, that's what can move us from shaken to stirred. Not necessarily overnight, but it can move us in that direction. What I'm saying to you this morning is this. The secret ingredient is prayer. Huh, isn't that funny? God's had us focus on prayer as an initiative for like eight years, and then he gets us onto evangelism. I think he knows what he's doing. The secret ingredient to evangelism is prayer. And, and frankly, follow me on this, okay? Logic, okay? Why would we expect anything different? Because if being saved means being sent, amen? We agree with that, right? We don't like it, but we agree with it, Okay? If being saved means being sent, and the biggest thing keeping me from living out my sentness is a lack of boldness, and I go to God and ask for boldness, why wouldn't he give me boldness to do what he told me to do in the first place? So, maybe I should say be careful what you ask for, but ask for it anyway, right? Seek him for the boldness. It's, and it's going to look different in each of our lives. Boldness is going to look different in each of our lives, through each of our personalities. 
But if we ask God for boldness, I believe with all my heart, and listen, I, I got a long ways to go here, so this sermon is for me first, and that's no joke, but if we pray for boldness, I believe God will begin to give it to us in the divine appointments he brings our way. Because he wants them to get saved more than you do, and more than I do. He loved them enough to send his son to the cross, and he will move. Earlier in the message this morning, I told you that we are studying prayer in the senior high equipping hour, and it's been a lot of fun, at least for me. I I think the kids are having fun. If not, they eat a lot of donuts, and that works well, too. But we've been working with the definition of prayer. It's not one I used before, but, but as I was just kind of mulling it over and praying about it, this is the definition of prayer God gave me, and I don't think I have this going on the screen, so if you want it, you're going to have to write it down fast. But we've been talking about the fact that prayer is simply conversing with God, Talking with God in a way that glorifies him, that changes us, and gets stuff done. Conversing with God in a way that glorifies him, changes us, and gets stuff done. And what do you know? Friday afternoon, just as I'm finishing up writing the sermon, it dawned on me that's exactly what happened here. That is exactly what happened when God's people prayed. Because through prayer born out of persecution and opposition, those early entirely untrained, right, and somewhat perhaps fearful Christians. What do they do? They started out by glorifying God. Oh, Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, sovereign controller of all things. They started out by glorifying God. They went on again, go home and read the postscript. They went on to get some really big things done. But what's the point of the message this morning? In doing so, through the process, they were changed. They once were shaken. Now they're stirred. So in closing, I have two things, two things, quickly, and we're done. Number one, a question. What scares you most about sharing your faith? What keeps you? There may be a lot of things, but if you could put it in a word or a couple of words, what is it that hinders you from sharing your faith in Jesus Christ, simply living as a witness? Another way to ask the question, in what sense do you need to be emboldened? Like, I need to be emboldened to move from shaken to stirred. I would urge you, if God is bringing an answer to that question to mind, to write it down. Name it. Acknowledge what it is. That's the question. Now, here's the big idea. With that in mind, knowing that's the need, make living as a witness a matter of prayer. Make living as a witness a matter of prayer. Seek the Lord, remembering his greatness. Seek the Lord, acknowledging your neediness. And then seek the Lord, requesting the boldness that you need for the place he's put you. And I believe he's going to give it because he wants to see people saved. Father, as often is the case, our challenge is not in the knowing, our challenge is in the doing. And Father, while maybe many of us today, as we prepare to exit the room, uh, we will not necessarily leave emboldened to immediately go out and share our faith. Some of us may, maybe not quite ready, but Father, we can all walk out these doors and begin to pray. 
to pray once a day, twice a day, three times, to, to put a reminder in our phone that dings us every hour just to pray and ask God for boldness, ask you to embolden and empower us. Father, we can start there and trust that through it, we may truly be changed. Father, what's past is past. Where we have missed opportunities, that's done. But Father, as your people, as a, a church family, brothers and sisters who love each other and who love you, Father, would you make this today, uh, this day, uh, just a day of, of, of a line of demarcation to saying, going forward, I will begin to pray for boldness. I will begin to pray for the lost people in my life. I will begin to pray that you will use me where I am, as I am, to bear witness to Jesus. Heavenly Father, take the things of truth that have been spoken here this morning and seal them in our hearts and let all the rest slip away so that we leave renewed in devotion to Jesus alone in whose name we pray. Amen.